This show was first broadcast on Free FM, Hamilton, New Zealand's community access media organisation. For more information on our lineup of shows and the role we play in the media, visit freefm.org.nz. Your father becomes your son, your mother your wife, and your enemies your friends. The opposite also takes place. Therefore, in cyclic existence, there's no certainty at all. This is the verse from Nagarjuna's letter to a friend that Namkar Pal quotes in his text Mind Training Like the Rays of the Sun when talking about the uncertainty of worldly phenomena, especially relationships. The quote is an explanation of a slogan in the text The Seven Points of Mind Training that Namkar Pal is commenting on. The slogan in The Seven Points of Mind Training is Subjugate all the reasons for selfishness. And Namkar Pal says we should suppress every instance of attachment and hatred that gives rise to exaggerated prejudices about friends, foes or strangers, the attractive and, and, and unattractive. This is because worldly phenomena in general are unreliable and relations between friends and foes in particular are uncertain. In other words, although we may regard our mother as the most important person in our life, we have to realize that in a previous life she may well have been our daughter or even our spouse or even our enemy. She certainly has not been our mother in all our previous lives. But this all assumes that we believe we go through innumerable previous lives. As Westerners, we are often skeptical about reincarnation, especially within families. I mean, could your deceased grandmother really come back as your newly born son? Does that seem too far a stretch to you? Well, you might like to visit the work of Dr. Ian Stevenson, who spent a great deal of his working life, 40 years in fact, investigating cases of children who remembered past lives, some in the families they were born into. Dr. Stevenson was both chairman of the Department of Psychiatry and also the Carlson Professor of Psychiatry at the University of Virginia School of Medicine. His work was remarkable in that he only pursued cases in which the children spontaneously remembered past lives that could be factually validated. In other words, children who were unlikely to have fabricated their past life memories. He was as scientific as he could be in the research, but still found some 1,200 out of 2,500 cases in which he was able to objectively validate the children's past life memories. Of course, this does not definitively prove reincarnation. Even Dr. Stevenson admitted that, but he did say that the evidence for it was pretty compelling. And among those he investigated were 31 sets of twins, some of whom remember past lives in which they were in the same family. Here is quite a well-known illustrative case from Dr. Stevenson's book, Children Who Remembered Past Lives. It concerns the identical twins Gillian and Jennifer Pollock, who were born at Hexham, Northumberland in England on the 4th of October 1958. Dr. Stevenson writes, When they were between two and four years old, they made several statements that suggested they remembered the lives of their two older sisters, Joanna and Jacqueline. On May the 5th, 1957, a crazed automobile driver had deliberately driven her car onto the pavement of a street in Hexham where Joanna and Jacqueline were walking and killed them both instantly. Joanna had been 11 and Jacqueline 6 when they had died. 
Grief from this tragedy numbed their parents, John and Florence Pollock. John Pollock, however, was a strong believer in reincarnation, although his wife was not. And when Florence became pregnant early in 1958, he confidently asserted that the two deceased sisters were going to be reborn as twins. Despite medical advice to the contrary, he persisted up to the time of the twins' birth in saying that his wife would have twins. Their births then vindicated his seemingly rash prediction, at least about a twin birth. His conviction immediately received some further support because he and his wife noticed that Jennifer, the younger twin, had two birthmarks that corresponded in location and size to two marks on Jacqueline's body. A mark on Jennifer's head, near the root of her nose, matched a scar that had persisted on Jacqueline's forehead after she had fallen and cut herself there, and a brown mark, nervous, on the left side of Jennifer's waist matched a similar congenital one on Jacqueline. I mention the above that between the ages of two and four, the twins made a few statements about the lives of their deceased sisters. In addition, they recognized some objects, such as toys, that their sisters had owned or with which they had been familiar. Their parents later asserted that the twins could not have known about these objects normally. The Pollocks had never discussed the deceased older sisters with the twins, and the twins could not have seen the objects they recognized before the occasions when they did so. When the twins were less than a year old, the family moved away from Hexham, and the twins did not return until their parents took them there when they were about four. On that occasion, the twins spontaneously mentioned two places, a school and some swings in a park, before these were in view. Although the twins had been taken to the park in their perambulator when they were infants, they had left Hexham when nine months old, their parents did not believe that they could have thereby acquired any normal knowledge about the school or the swings in the park. Gillian and Jennifer also showed behaviour that corresponded to the behaviour of the deceased older sisters. Jennifer was rather dependent on her older twin sister Gillian, just as Jacqueline had been on her older sister Joanna. When the twins learned to write, Gillian readily held a pencil between her fingers and thumb, but Jennifer grasped her pencil in a fist. Joanna had been able to write correctly for some years before her death, whereas Jacqueline, who was only six when she died, persisted in holding the writing instrument in her fist. Dr. Stevenson goes on, but just let's leave the account to rest there while we remember our motivation for taking part in today's program. Remember bodhicitta, that is the wish to attain enlightenment for the benefit of all living beings, and let that be our motivation, because it is the greatest of all motivations, focusing as it does on the freedom from suffering of all beings, not just one or two. So let's make that our motivation today, but if you really can't, at least think that you are here today to get enlightenment for your own well-being. Thank you. Now let's get back to Dr. Stevenson and the Pollock family. I first investigated this case in 1964, Dr. Stevenson writes, and remained in touch with the Pollock family until 1985. John Pollock's enthusiasm for reincarnation may diminish the strength of the case among persons who cannot believe that he and his wife, or some other member of the family, did not talk about the deceased sisters in front of the twins. 
in response to the suggestion that his conviction about reincarnation may have weakened and even vitiated the case, he wisely replied that, although this objection has some merit, his openness concerning reincarnation enabled him to note and remember remarks and behaviors of his twin daughters that most other Western parents would have ignored or laughed at. Dr. Stevenson continues, In 1978, I arranged for blood tests that would show, through analysis of the blood types and subtypes of Jennifer and Gillian and other members of the family, whether the twins' bodies derived from one or two eggs. The tests demonstrated that they were identical or one egg that's monozygotic twins. This means that they have the same genetic material. Since birthmarks of the type Jennifer had are sometimes hereditary, one would expect that if Jennifer's birthmarks were of genetic origin, Gillian would have similar marks. Because she did not have any, we may suppose that some biological aberration during the twins' gestation produced Jennifer's birthmarks. But this hypothesis would not account for their close correspondence in size and location to the marks on Jacqueline's body. Gillian and Jennifer Pollock grew up to become normal young women. Long before that, they had completely forgotten in later childhood the memories they had had of previous lives. In my later meetings with them, they were mildly sceptical about their own case. By this, I mean that not then having any persisting memories of previous lives, they did not present themselves as offering evidence for reincarnation. But they did not deny the evidence their parents had obtained from observing them when they were young children. Can we conclude, therefore, that the evidence their parents had collected should be ignored or derided? Well, here is another case of twins who remembered a closer relationship in a previous life. This one is about Savanthi and Shiromi, who were born in the district Gaal, Sri Lanka, on the 3rd of November 1978, to Amarapala and Yasawati Hatiarachi. The family lived in the village of Petadenia, about 14 kilometers north of the city Gaul. Dr. Stevenson writes, Savanti was the older twin by five minutes. She was born with a prominent birthmark on her abdomen. It was an area of heavily increased pigmentation. When she was about four years old, it measured about two centimeters in length and one centimeter in width at its widest extent. Shiromi had no birthmarks. From analysis of the twins' blood groups and subgroups, we learned that they were fraternal, dizygotic twins. Savanthi was the first of the twins to speak about a previous life. At the age of about two and a half, she began referring to another home where she said that she had a father, mother and younger sister. She made many statements about the previous life, including descriptions of how in the previous life she had been shot while jumping into the sea. When she spoke about being shot, she pointed to the birthmark on her abdomen. She asked to go to my home and also spoke about a temple at a place called Yatigala, which is close to Gaul and about 15 kilometers from Petadenia. When Savanti was about three and a half, Yasawati took her to the temple at Yatigala. There, Savanti made some further statements about the previous life she was remembering. Also, at about this time, she said that in her previous life, her name had been Robert. Savanti talked about a previous life for about a year, during which Shiromi said nothing. Savanti's statement that she had been called Robert 
together with her description of being shot as Robert and jumping into the sea, identified the person she was talking about as a well-known insurgent called Robert who had been killed by the police during the insurgency in Sri Lanka of April 1971. Robert had had a close friend called Johnny. Word of what Savanthi had been saying spread to Robert's family who lived near Gaul and from them to the family of Johnny. One of Johnny's younger brothers, Gnanandasa, then went to Pitadanya to see the twins. When Shiromi saw him, she said, My younger brother has come. Then she began to talk about a previous life, that of Johnny. Thereafter, the twins often talked about the lives of Robert and Johnny. Although Savanti had not earlier identified Shiromi as Johnny reborn, at least to the knowledge of, ad- of the adults in the family, once Shiromi be- had begun to talk about the life of Johnny, each twin fully recognized the other as from the previous lives. After Ganana Dancer's visit to the twins, they subsequently met other members of both Johnny's and Robert's families. The twins recognized some of these persons correctly. Savanthi, unaided according to Godwin Samararatna, who was with her, showed the way along a tortuous path, which I later traversed myself, to the place where Robert had tried to escape from the police, the details of which I will mention later. The families of Robert and Johnny fully accepted the twins as being these men reborn. No member of their families, and we interviewed twelve in all, expressed any doubts concerning the twins' claims. Before describing the twins' unusual behaviours, I will describe the lives and deaths of Johnny and Robert. Johnny, like Robert, had been an insurgent. He was in fact the leader of the insurgents in the Gaul area. He and Robert were best friends and well known in the area to be homosexuals. They were not, however, effeminate. They engaged skillfully in such activities as swimming and climbing trees, an essential skill in harvesting coconuts. Robert had no steady work but did odd jobs here and there, repairing houses or working as a mason. Johnny became employed at a factory for making spectacle frames. Amarapala Hetiarachi was employed at the same factory, and he became acquainted with Johnny there. He invited Johnny and Robert also to attend his wedding. Robert and Johnny belonged to the underemployed segment of Sri Lankan youth from which members of the 1971 insurgency movement were largely recruited. The insurgents succeeded in concealing their intentions and preparations so well that when they struck, mainly at police stations in the hope of obtaining more arms, the government was to an extent taken by surprise. It reacted swiftly and within a few weeks the insurgency had been suppressed. Brutally and with excessive force, it was generally thought afterwards. Robert and Johnny had at first hidden themselves but then for some reason decided to move away from Gaul. Someone tipped the police, who arrested them at the bus station in Gaul. They were taken to the police station and interrogated. Robert had the idea that he might escape by jumping into the sea. He offered to show the police where the insurgents had hidden bombs on a hill, which had a cliff with the sea directly beneath it. The police accepted his proposal. Informants saw Robert with his hands handcuffed behind his back, being led to this hill by a group of policemen. A short time afterwards, a shot was heard and the policemen returned without Robert. The police officers later said that Robert had kicked one of them 
tried to butt another with his head and was going to jump into the sea and escape. This was not necessarily a foolish plan because Robert was an excellent swimmer and might have survived even with his hands restrained. One of the policemen then shot him and his body fell or was pushed into the sea. The police were so angry over Robert's almost successful attempt to deceive them that back in the police station they beat Johnny up until he died. They then hanged his body by the feet and subsequently cremated it. Many of the details I have mentioned and others figure in the statements that Sivanthi and Shiromi made. I have already explained that the twins' father, Amarapala, had known Johnny well and had had some acquaintance with Robert. The circumstances of the deaths of Robert and Johnny were also well known in the community. It is therefore unlikely that Savanthi and Shiromi made any statements about matters outside their parents' normal knowledge. This is not to say that they obtained their knowledge of the lives and deaths of Robert and Johnny from their parents or from any other normal source. The insurgency had occurred about ten years before Savanthi began to talk about a previous life and I think it improbable that she heard references to it that would account for her detailed knowledge of the life of Robert. The twins' unusual behaviour forms an important part of their case as their statements. They showed several markedly masculine traits. They liked to wear t-shirts and to roll them up above their waist so that their abdomens and lower chests were exposed. Robert and Johnny had sometimes rolled up their t-shirts as the twins did. They sometimes wore pieces of cloth that they would arrange like a man's sarong. They also urinated standing up, as boys do, until their mother checked this. They both liked to climb trees and play with bicycles, generally considered masculine activities. However, they also played with dolls and sometimes at cooking. In addition to the types of play I've already mentioned, the twins also played at making bombs with clay. When asked of what bombs were made, they mentioned some of the ingredients that would, would have gone into the crude bombs that the insurgents made. The twins also sometimes showed adult attitudes. They put sticks in their mouths and pretended to be smoking cigarettes. Robert and Johnny had both smoked cigarettes. They both said they had beards and sometimes stroked their faces as if feeling a beard's growth. Both of the twins had a noticeable phobia of loud noises, of persons wearing khaki, which the police usually wore in Sri Lanka, and of jeeps, a vehicle commonly driven by the police and army there. In addition to the prominent birthmark on Savanthi, the twins showed differences of complexion and physique that corresponded to similar differences between Robert and Johnny. Shiromi was noticeably darker in complexion than Savanthi. Johnny had been darker than Robert. Robert was shorter and stockier than Johnny, and Sivanthi was shorter and stockier than Shiromi. This description comes from Dr. Stevenson's 1970 book Where Reincarnation and Biology Intersect. In the book, he writes that he investigated 40 cases of twins and added an another two cases that other authors had covered, thus making a total of 42 cases of twins. More than half of those came from Burma, Dr. Stevenson says that in 10 cases, both twins spoke equally of previous lives. In 12 cases, one twin said more than the other. In 13 cases, only one spoke. And in two cases, 
neither spoke, but information identified them as having had previous lives on the basis of dreams, birthmarks and behavior. For five cases, there was no information. It's interesting to note that of the 13 cases in which only one twin spoke of a previous life, six of the speakers said that they had known the other twin in a previous life. That is, says Dr. Stevenson, the speaker claimed to have known him or her in a previous lives during which they were contemporaries. For example, one twin of Burma said that in a previous life he'd been an officer in the British Army and that his co-twin had been his servant in the army. The co-twin never spoke about a previous life, but he showed subservient behavior towards the twin who spoke that was harmonious with the different statuses that the one who spoke said they had previously had. Dr. Stevenson quotes another case in which a woman in Burma had a dream a relative who had died three months earlier came to her and said that he and a companion were coming to live with her. A month later, the woman became pregnant and gave birth to twins, one of whom spoke about a life as her previous relative. He said that while he was in the bardo between lives, he'd met another villager he knew who had died some time before and invited that villager to be born with him, hence the twins. So in quite a large number of cases, the twins had known each other in a previous life, not always as family, but at least as acquaintances. Dr. Stevenson reports, in 36, that's 86% of the 42 cases, the previous personalities had been related or acquainted, or one twin said they had been. The relationships were of different kinds. Some had been spouses, others siblings, and others more distant relatives, friends, or acquaintances. There was also a high incidence of a relationship or acquaintance between the previous personalities and the twins' parents, says Dr. Stevenson. Among the 84 previous personalities, 26 were related to the parents and another 26 were acquainted with them, so that there was some personal connection between the previous personalities and the twins' parents in 62% of the cases. Another 15 previous personalities were strangers to the twins' parents and 17 may or may not have been strangers. So, perhaps we can now not dismiss quite so easily Nagarjuna's claim, your father becomes your son, your mother your wife, and your enemies your friends. The opposite also takes place. And just to prove the point, here is one other case, this time not of twins, but of a man who predicted that he would come back as his niece's son. The man was an elderly Tlingit fisherman named Victor Vincent, and his niece was Irene Chotkin. Dr. Stevenson reports, He showed her two scars from minor operations, one near the bridge of his nose and one on his upper back. As he did so, he said that she would recognize him in his next incarnation by birthmarks on his body corresponding to these scars. Victor Vincent died in the spring of 1946. About 18 months later, on December 15, 1947, Irene Chotkin gave birth to a baby boy, who was named after his father. Corliss Chotkin Jr. had two birthmarks, which his mother said were exactly at the sites of the scars to which Victor Vincent had drawn her attention on his body. By the time I first examined these birthmarks in 1962, both had shifted, according to Irene Chotkin, 
from the positions they had had at Corliss's birth. Yet they remained quite visible, and the one on Corliss's back impressed me strongly. It was an area on the skin about three centimeters in length and five millimeters in width. Compared with the surrounding skin, it was darker and slightly raised. Its resemblance to the healed scar of a surgical wound was greatly increased by the presence at the sides of the main birthmark of several small round marks that seemed to correspond to positions of the small round wounds made by needles that placed the stitches used to close surgical wounds. When Corliss was only 13 months old and his mother was trying to get him to repeat his name, he said to her petulantly, Don't you know who I am? I'm Karkodi. This was the tribal name Victor Vincent had had. When Irene Chotkin mentioned Corliss's claim that he was Karkodi to one of her aunts, the latter said that she had dreamed shortly before Corliss's birth that Victor Vincent was coming to live with the Chotkins. Irene Chotkin was certain that she had not previously told her aunt about Victor Vincent's prediction that he would return as her son. When Corliss was between one and three years old, he spontaneously recognized several persons whom Victor Vincent had known, including Victor Vincent's widow. Irene Chotkin said that he also mentioned two events in the life of Victor Vincent about which he did not think he could have obtained information normally. In addition, Corliss showed several behavioral traits corresponding to similar ones that Victor Vincent had shown. Corliss combed his hair in a manner closely resembling the style of Victor Vincent. Both Corliss and Victor Vincent stuttered. Both had a strong interest in boats and in being on the water. Both had strong religious propensities, and both were left-handed. Corliss also had a precocious interest in engines and some skill in handling and repairing them. His mother said he had taught himself how to run boat engines. It is unlikely that Corliss inherited or learnt this particular skill from his father, who had little interest in engines or skill with them. After about the age of about nine, Corliss made fewer remarks about the previous life he had seemed to remember earlier, and by 1962, when I first met him, he said that he remembered nothing about it. I met Corliss and his family three times in the early 1960s, and once more in 1972. At the time of his last meeting, Corliss had almost completely lost the stuttering that formerly afflicted him, but he still stuttered when he became excited. His interest in religion had diminished, but he maintained his interest in engines. During the Vietnam War, he had seen combat as an artilleryman, and a shell bursting near him had damaged his hearing. Otherwise, when I last saw him in 1972, he enjoyed good health and was working contentedly at a pulp mill near his home in Sitka. So these are just a sample of the cases that Dr. Stevenson investigated that indicate from life to life we can be born as relatives in the same family. Of course, there are many cases in which people are born into completely strange families, but that too just proves the point that in the long term our relationships are unreliable. As Nam Kapal says, we have no real basis to indulge in attachment to some and aversion to others. Doing that just leads to suffering in this and coming lives. Wouldn't it be much better to develop an economist, warm-hearted attitude to everyone, recognizing that each has been in many relationships with ourselves in previous lives? But now it's time to go as our time is up. 
Thanks for bearing with me today, and I hope we'll meet over the airwaves again next week. Please don't forget to dedicate any positive potential from our time together today to gaining enlightenment for the benefit of all beings. Thanks again, and goodbye. For more episodes, use the accessmedia.nz app for iOS and Android devices, or subscribe to this podcast via Spotify, iHeartRadio, or Apple Podcasts. This free FM podcast was brought to you with support from New Zealand On Air.